You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. And welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. <clears throat> I am your host, Nick Peters, and I think I got the sound equipment working here a little bit better as I said last week. It's new, and so I hope things are coming through just fine. And as I said last week, we also have an interesting discussion today. It's going to be Johannine theology, the subject of being the Gospel of John, the Epistles of John, and the Revelation of John. And to discuss that with us, we have the author of the book, Johannine Theology. His name is Dr. Paul Rainbower. Who is he? He was born in Minneapolis in 1955. He studied at the University of Minnesota at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, at Harvard Divinity School, and at the University of Oxford in England. He taught briefly at Canadian Bible College when it was in Regina, Saskatchewan, before undertaking advanced studies. He served on staff as a lay assistant at St. Abbey's Church in Oxford, which is Church of England, Anglican, from 1987 to 1988. He's been at Sioux Falls Seminary, a German Baptist, for the last 26 years teaching New Testament. He's married to Allison with two grown children, and for a hobby, he's also a classical pianist. So, Dr. Rainbow, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be with you. Mm-hmm. Now... Tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing today on a more personal note. What what got you into this field? Uh, are you asking about the field of Johannine theology in particular or teaching? Just into ministry in particular, and then we'll even go into Johannine theology in particular. Okay, well, when I was in high school, uh, my youth pastor put his hand on my shoulder one day and suggested I might consider going to seminary. So I took that suggestion, and uh, the next thing I did after college was to go to seminary thinking I might become a pastor or uh, a missionary or perhaps a teacher. I didn't know exactly what field uh, God would lead me into. Uh, As an undergraduate, at the University of Minnesota, I, I ended up in the classics department, and I chose Greek as my major. Uh, that was a classical approach. We studied Homer and Thucydides and Herodotus and those kinds of authors. I did have one or two courses in the New Testament as well, uh, but that naturally led me then, uh, when I went to seminary, into focusing on New Testament classes because the New Testament is written in Greek, Uh, And likewise, uh, when I finished seminary and went on to my first job, turned out to be a teaching job. Mm -hmm. I I applied uh, for lots of pastoral positions uh, back in 1980. This would have been the spring of 1980, and I had my resume sent out to a wide range of churches, but I never heard even a phone call, uh, not even an inquiry from any of them. Uh, But during my senior week, uh, senior finals week in June of 1980, a representative from Canadian Bible College happened to be on campus 
He said they had a faculty opening and an urgent need for someone to come and teach some Bible for them up in Regina. Uh, so that was that was where God led me, and, and it, it was as though he sort of shifted me away from thinking of the pastorate and right straight into uh, a more academic line of work. So having had a couple of years teaching in Canada, I decided I needed to get the further qualifications I would need to make a career of teaching. So I went on and did advanced studies, uh, again, focusing on New Testament. That's sort of the uh, the potted history. Mm-hmm. Well, when we talk about <clears throat> the work of John, I can't but think at the story of how N.T. Wright was once asked by a committee about something he wrote, and he said, you didn't pay much attention to the Gospel of John. And mm. his response was, the Gospel of John is like my wife, Maggie. I love her, but I don't claim to understand her. <laughs> and, and John usually is something, is a writer who's very difficult to understand, but his Gospel and his revelation definitely are so different from everything else. Why is that? Well, John wrote his gospel uh, quite a bit later, probably, Mm -hmm. than uh, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mm -hmm. Uh, John, assuming that it was the Apostle John Mm -hmm. who wrote the gospel, or at least who is the the mind uh, that inspired the gospel, mm-hmm. uh, he would have been a participant in the Jerusalem community. And so when when all 12 apostles were still in Jerusalem and were still uh, recalling uh, things that Jesus had said and things that Jesus had done and, and were sort of hammering out the main line of the gospel story, uh, John would have contributed his insights and he would have heard and been reminded uh, of what the other apostles had experienced as well. So he was a a first-hand participant, uh, in a way, in making the Synoptic Gospels. But the story goes, it's preserved in several places in early fathers of the church, that at some later time, uh, the people who were in John's community surrounding him, uh, maybe it was because they realized that uh, it was it was getting to be now into the second generation. John had maybe been the youngest of Jesus' disciples, and so he was still living late into the first century, uh, maybe even into the reign of the emperor Trajan. Uh, and many of the other apostles were, were dying off or had, had become martyrs already. Peter and Paul had both been martyred in Rome in the 60s. Uh, as, as things moved on, Maybe people realized that it would be a good idea to capture John's memoirs uh, before he too died. Uh, and so his gospel uh, is put together in a, in a little different way. It seems to assume that the readers already know uh, a lot of the information that's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, in the synoptic tradition. Uh, and John takes us further and gives us more personal reminiscences. He seems to have had an eye for uh, small incidents in the lifetime of Jesus that didn't necessarily make it into the main story, but they told the same, uh, they, they, they made plain the same truths about our Lord and Savior, and so John included them in his gospel. I think that might be the reason why it's as different as it is. 
Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now, you did say, assuming John was the author, and I do want the listeners to know it, you do have some material in the book where you do argue for John being the author of the material. And so what I'm going to do for the sake of the time and the fullness of the interview is we're going to take that assumption as true. If someone wants to have more information out, they can get the book and they can read it and they can hear your argument. But we want to focus more on the theology. Okay. The book. Now, one statement that really caught my attention early on in the book when I was reading it, and it was one of those statements, it just really surprised me, but then immediately I thought, yeah, I should have known that. And it's about the revelation of God the Father. And you say, God is a person from whom all reality comes and to whom it goes, both in the whole Bible and in John's thought. At the center of the Johannine theology is God the Father, specifically the revelation of God's love and reward by sending his Son. And now the idea there that I think you're pointing out is that usually we talk about the understanding of Christology in the Gospel of John, and no doubt that's important. But the first thing to understand is theology, because the, the Gospel of John isn't just to reveal who, who Jesus is, but the primary meaning of revealing who Jesus is is to reveal who the Father is. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, that, that point becomes clear uh, right in the opening verses, mm-hmm. where John calls Jesus God's Word. In the mm-hmm. beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and one, one has to ask the question. It's a very unusual way uh, to refer to Jesus, or anyone for that matter, to call them someone's Word. Uh, and so one has to ask, why did John uh, use that very unusual description for Jesus? And I think it's because uh, he wanted us to to think of Jesus as God's self-communication to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, God took who he is and his thoughts and his aspirations and his love for the world, and he compressed all of that into Jesus as his great communication. So in sending his son into the world, it was like a speaker who is letting fly a statement about himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's probably why John uses that designation. Uh, in, in which case, uh, you know, the, the ultimate speaker here is God, and Jesus is the thing spoken. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it seems so unusual to us to think that way, because many of us do have a theology which is Jesus-centered, in everything, but Jesus' theology was Father-centered mm-hmm. in everything. Everything he did, he did to glorify the Father. That's what he says several times in this mm-hmm. Gospel. Uh, I remember my first sabbatical mm-hmm. was back in 1994-95, uh, and for that sabbatical, I took our, our young family. My wife and I had a couple of young children at the time, and we moved back to Oxford for a year, or actually just outside of Oxford, there's a, a place in Yarnton, uh, about five miles to the northwest of Oxford, called the Oxford Center for Hebrew and Jewish Studies. It had been a, uh, a home of a wealthy person, and it's been bought and converted into a research institute. Uh, we were about the only Gentiles in that community, 
most of the most of them were Jewish scholars, uh, many many coming from New York City or for London from London or from the land of Israel. And I remember at one afternoon seminar, uh, an old and much revered, uh, much respected Jewish scholar stood up, and I don't even remember what. Uh, the subject was that we were all discussing, but he, he, he made the statement that, of course, our Christian friends have put Jesus now in the place where where God should be, uh, as, as though Jesus has somehow upstaged or uh, obscured God the Father. Uh, and it troubled me uh, that he had that impression of Christianity, but I realized that he probably got that impression of Christianity from actual Christians who haven't been properly instructed in their own faith, mm -hmm. uh, because we do so readily talk about Jesus, 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 as though he is the center of everything. Uh, and in many ways he is central in that God has concentrated everything he wants us to know about himself, Mm -hmm. in the revelation he gave us through Christ. But, uh, as you say, ultimately, uh, Jesus came to reveal his Father. Uh, he never did anything on his own initiative. He imitated his Father. All his words originated from the Father. All his acts were empowered by the Father. Uh, and it's ultimately so that we can know God, that God sent him to us. Well, from a practical perspective, then, what do you think we as Christians can do in this kind of situation where we want to hold a good, proper, high theology, we want to uphold the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the Lordship of Christ, everything else, but at the same time we want to make sure that we're honoring the Father who sent Christ as well. How, how would you best recommend we go about doing something like this? Well, there are some very practical things we can do. Uh, you know, there's a tradition in the church that when we when we pray, our prayers are are to be directed to God the Father in the name of Jesus or through the Son mm -hmm. uh, and in the Holy Spirit. And if we just use that kind of language when we pray, understanding ourselves ultimately to be our, addressing ourselves mm -hmm. to the Father. Uh, that might help us to keep this point clear. Mm -hmm. uh, reading and becoming familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures, otherwise known as the Old Testament, yep. uh, that can be uh, a practical thing we need to do as well, because after mm -hmm. all, for Jesus himself, uh, the only Bible he had was the Hebrew Scriptures, and and. So when he quotes from Scripture, it's it's always from somewhere in the Old Testament. For him, that is an authoritative revelation of God. Mm -hmm. uh, and he himself said, uh, not so clearly in John, it comes out more in Matthew, that he, he didn't come to, uh, to be an iconoclast. He didn't come to destroy, but he came to fulfill uh, that which was given in prior revelation. Mm -hmm. So if we if we think in terms of continuity between the two testaments, uh, the the New Testament is not a replacement, uh, it's not a correction, uh, it certainly isn't given to jettison what went before, uh, but rather it's to gather up all the great central principles and themes uh, of the Hebrew Scriptures and bring them uh, to a culminating point. Yeah, one thing that brings to mind also is that 
John is writing a Jewish work, and his writings will be read by Jews. So it, it seems interesting that he would be writing this so they would also know who the Father is, because you would think if anyone knew who God the Father was, wouldn't it have been the Jews? But it looks like a lot of them really didn't. Well, the yeah, that brings up an important point. Uh, the opponents of Jesus in the fourth gospel uh, are identified sometimes as the Jews, sometimes as the Pharisees in particular, and toward the end, uh, as we move into the Passion account, it's the authorities in Jerusalem drawn mainly from the priestly, uh, aristocratic uh, circles. But, uh, you know, Jesus never criticizes them for being Jewish or mm -hmm. for, for thinking in Jewish terms. Uh, what he criticizes them for, if anything, is that they're not true to their own Jewish heritage, that they they think they know the scriptures and yet they don't really perceive uh, what is the center of the scriptures. And it's not because they're Jewish, it's because they're sinners. Uh, the people at the end of the gospel who reject him and uh, enter into cahoots with Pilate to have him crucified, uh, there's no indication that they were really acting out of the principles of Judaism at all. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, John's Gospel, more clearly than any of the others, uh, takes us to a little discussion that took place in the in the Sanhedrin. Uh, it comes in toward the end of chapter 11 in John's Gospel, where Caiaphas says uh, that he, he feels uh, they ought to get rid of Jesus, ought to take out the one innocent man in order to spare the nation as a whole. Uh, and it's obvious in that context that Pilate and the other members of the Sanhedrin are really only concerned about their own position of power. Uh, they're, they're perceiving Jesus as a threat uh, because his movement is becoming influential, uh, and he isn't always uh, willing to toe their line. Uh, and so as it becomes plain that Jesus is building support and lots of people are following him, uh, they became concerned uh, that Rome might not hold them as puppets in the positions where they had been placed. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they took steps uh, to get rid of Jesus. But in, in acting in that way, uh, they're not in any way being faithful to their Jewish heritage. They're, they're acting selfishly and in their own interest. Uh, and so ultimately, there, there wasn't necessarily any conflict between uh, Judaism of the Second Temple period and the claims that Jesus made, uh, the conflict was between Jesus and uh, a fully carnal and corrupt uh, group of leaders who didn't want to have a rival on their hands. Mm -hmm. Now, something I'd also said just now was about how John is a Jew writing to an audience that would consist of Jews as well. No doubt there would be some Gentiles in there too, but Jews as well. Now, some scholars in the past would have scoffed at the idea that this that much of John is Jewish because well you have so many themes in there that seem to be dualistic and that doesn't really fit up with the Jewish worldview until we came across the Dead Sea Scrolls and we found lo and behold the Essenes who were Jewish also had this view and mm -hmm. that's mean things like light and darkness for instance that John has a sharp dichotomy going on there and you talk about this a lot in your third chapter when you talk about 
John's view of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, if you go back far enough in secondary literature, uh, in research, uh, in the first half of the 20th century, uh, there was a movement called the History of Religion School, mm -hmm. uh, especially in continental Europe. And lots of those scholars uh, believed that John's Gospel was the most Hellenistic or, or Greek-tinged uh, of any of our Gospels. Uh, that hypothesis, as you say, was largely overthrown uh, toward the middle of the 20th century. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered starting in the late 1940s. Now, we, we don't actually know how representative uh, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls community was of all Pal Palestinian Jews. That, that issue is still up for grabs uh, because they... Yeah, Josephus tells us that it was the, the scribes and the Pharisees, probably, who uh, were the most influential leaders of Jewish thought, at least at the time when Jesus lived. So the, uh, the people who lived out at Qumran and who were not in fruitful dialogue with the, the Jerusalem leaders, uh, you know, they, they probably had some unusual uh, slightly offbeat ideas of their own, and we shouldn't necessarily assume uh, that everything they held uh, would have been believed by other Palestinian Jews. Nevertheless, uh, the fact remains, uh, in, in discovering those old scrolls, this is the first time we had evidence, archaeological evidence, actually from the first century B.C. and A.D., uh, giving us a window into what ancient Jews of Palestine, at least this one group, did believe, and uh, sure enough, they're talking about the sons of light and the sons of darkness uh, entering into a great apocalyptic battle at the end of time. Uh, they talk about the spirit of truth versus the spirit of falsehood, and so we find a number of the big concepts that also occur in John's Gospel suddenly uh, coming to light in the language of this uh, alternative Jewish community right there in the center of Palestine, right in the time period uh, when when Jesus and John and others would have been active. So yes, that, uh, that discovery swung uh, the majority of scholars worldwide uh, over into a recognition that John's is in many ways the most Jewish of the Gospels, not the least. So what is John's view of the world, then? Uh, John's view of the world? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, uh, John, John speaks of the world, or the cosmos, as he calls it, uh, much more frequently than other writers of the New Testament do. Um, sometimes when he talks about the world, he's thinking of it as the object of God's creation, Sometimes he's thinking of it as all human beings or the inhabitants uh, of the universe. But more often than not, uh, he thinks of the world as a system that's now fallen. Uh, and I guess I would point, uh, for example, to, to the first chapter in verse 10, uh, where we find all, all these senses coming together, uh, talking about the Word of God, the Son of God whom he sent. It says, He was in the world, 
and the world came into being through him. So there the world is a positive thing. God made it. God created it. God values it. Yet the world did not know him. Uh, there we see the world in its rebellion against God. Uh, so he was in the world. He was among human beings, all the inhabitants uh, of the human sphere. Uh, the whole world came into being through him and yet uh, did not know him. Uh, and so that's kind of John's basic concept. The world is something that uh, something that God holds in his hand and sustains and that he values and that he wants to redeem. Uh, nevertheless, uh, ever since the very beginning of time, almost uh, the world has been in a in a state of uh, alienation from God, uh, resistant to God's overtures and attempts to reach out to it. Uh, and that sets up the problem that requires redemption. And then for the Essenes, this usually culminated in a sort of grand final battle, and John has something that could be seen like that in his revelation, doesn't mm -hmm. he? Mm -hmm. Very much so. Uh, yeah, there's a good deal in common between the book of Revelation and other Jewish apocalypses of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, a grand a grand confrontation between mm -hmm. the forces of light and the forces of evil uh, in which God finally triumphs. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of uh, people who do seem though, to dismiss Revelation too quickly, especially even some of the more skeptical community who just see it as some sort of crazy writing and such. And on the other hand, I can kind of sympathize with what G.K. Chesterton once said that while St. John the Revelator saw many strange and wild creatures in his revelation, he never saw a creature so strange and wild as one of his own commentators. Right. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, the, the book of Revelation uh, comes across to those of us who live now in the 21st century and, and aren't so familiar with uh, the Hebrew Scriptures. It comes across as a bizarre book mm -hmm. uh, full of unfamiliar images uh, but most of the book of Revelation is just a tissue of allusions uh, to to the scriptures, to the Old Testament. Uh, and the more familiar we are, especially with the prophets, uh, Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel, uh, Zechariah, uh, John has made heavy use of, of and the book of Daniel, oh, maybe yes. above all. Uh, mm -hmm. John has made heavy use uh, of the imagery found in those places, and he just sort of recombined some of the images uh, so as to speak a message to his first century readers. Uh, and so the better we know the background to the book of Revelation in the Bible itself, uh, the more uh, the book of Revelation becomes uh, crystalline and clear to us. The book of Revelation, when we compare it with the New Testament, in the rest of the books of the New Testament, that is. In most of the other books, you'll find the Old Testament being quoted profusely. But when you get to Revelation, I'm thinking right off that I can only think of one place in there where the Old Testament is quoted. And I think that's in one of the letters that's sent to the churches. In the rest of it, the Old Testament is not quoted explicitly, but the the reader is supposed to have a background knowledge and know the Old Testament well enough that they can recognize the constant allusions that John is making. 
Mm-hmm. Exactly. And in, in fact, that's one of the characteristics that runs throughout the Johannine literature. It's one of the reasons why I think John is ultimately the author of the Gospel, the Epistles, and the Apocalypse, is the mm. way he, he uses Scripture, because he doesn't very often quote uh, verbatim from the Scriptures. Even when he does quote, uh, it's often paraphrased, or uh, he puts things in a way that will be most clear to the reader without necessarily following a, a written text in front of him. Uh, so he tends to be elusive uh, rather than to use the Ipsissima Verba of the Bible. Now, the next section you have is on God's self-revelation in the person of Christ. So, what does the person of Christ have to do with the revelation of God? Well, that's the chapter uh, in which we review... Uh, the evidence in John's Gospel uh, that John did view the Son of God mm-hmm. uh, as being all of a piece with his Father uh, of the same essence. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, uh, the revelation of, of God the Father took place uh, in sending into the world someone who was what he is himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the unique take in John's Gospel, uh, the the Son of God can explain God from within because he is what God is and was in eternal fellowship with his Father uh, from eternity past, long ages before he ever came into the world. Uh, but he's also, it's appropriate that, that when God wants to speak into the world, he send the Son uh, because the Son is de- derived from the Father. Uh, he, he's not the point of orientation within the Trinity, uh, and so it's appropriate that he be the sent one rather than the sender. Mm-hmm. I, I think that same kind of thing is going on also in John one eighteen, where we have a passage about the no man... I've seen God any time the only begotten Son, he's in father, who's in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him. And it's my understanding that that word for revealed him is also where we get our word for exegesis from. And that That's and right. pretty much it's saying that the Jesus exegetes God for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, uh, the translation you read sounds like it's based on uh, one group of manuscripts. No one has ever seen God. God, the only Son, has made him known. Uh, but there there are some old manuscripts, probably the oldest and maybe even the, the most reliable ones, who actually say the only begotten God. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is the one who has made God known, which makes the same point even more dramatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, what more appropriate vehicle of revelation uh, could there be than for mm-hmm. God to send into the world someone who is uh, the only begotten God, mm-hmm. uh, so that it is God explaining God? Mm-hmm. And we can also see this in the passage in John fourteen nine with Philip coming to Jesus, say, hey, "Jesus, uh, show us a Father. That'll be enough for us." And Peter saying, "Haven't you been with me long enough? 
if to see me is to see the Father. Mm-hmm. Yes, Jesus makes the same point uh, there in his own words. Mm-hmm. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And he goes on to say, don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father in me? Mm-hmm. Uh, the words I speak to you, I don't speak on my own. The Father who dwells in me does his works. So his words come from the Father. His works uh, are the works of the Father. Everything that Jesus says and does uh, represents the truth of God himself. And that's why Jesus can say earlier in that same chapter, I am the way and the truth and the life, meaning I am the way to God uh, and I am the truth of God, the reality of what God is sent into the world. Uh, and, and therefore, in encountering Jesus, we encounter the source of life itself. Mm-hmm. And what about uh, when we come to a passage like John seventeen three? where many people who are the Jehovah's Witnesses and others would look at that and say, where here Jesus says the Father is the only true God, so that excludes Jesus from being deity, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, here Jesus uses a phrase that was typical of Jewish monotheism to refer to God the Father as the only true God, as opposed to pagan polytheism. Mm-hmm. Uh, because after all, John, when he wrote this gospel, was living probably somewhere in the area of the ancient city of Ephesus, which was a pagan city. Uh, That was where they worshipped, what was her name in the book of Acts? Artemis. Artemis of the Ephesians. Mm -hmm. So there was a temple to her, but they they would have had temples to all the all the Greco-Roman deities as well scattered throughout the city. And so in referring to uh, the God of Israel as the only true God, Jesus is saying that all these others are false. I don't think he means there uh, to exclude himself uh, because that confession goes on to say right there in John 17:3, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So... So the confession of the Son of God, the one sent from his Father, is right there parallel to, juxtaposed to, uh, the confession of God as the only true God. Uh, but of course, for, for Jesus, uh, for, for, for the, the view of Jesus found in the fourth gospel, whether he's divine or not, uh, it's not enough just to look at one verse and, and take it out of context. We have mm-hmm. to look at everything that John has to say. Right about Mm -hmm. him and right in the opening verse he lays down the thesis uh, that the word not only was with God distinct from the father but uh, he also was God ein theos ein hologos he puts it in Greek Uh, what God was the word was likewise likewise at the end of the gospel when Thomas recognizes Jesus having come back from the dead. He confesses, my Lord and my God. Uh, So both at the beginning and the end, John has made it plain what his thesis is. Since you brought up the beginning of John after affirming the deity of Christ in response to a question about Jehovah's Witnesses, let's ask you, while you're here as well, what about their translation that they have of the the Gospel of John where we say in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was a God. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that is uh, that is how the New World Translation uh, renders that last clause in John 1.1. The word was mm-hmm. a God. Uh, and, you know, technically it is true uh, that the Greek word there for God does not have the article with it. Uh, and so the, the larger question has to be then, why... Why doesn't John include the article uh, if he does believe that Jesus uh, is, in fact, what his father is in essence? Uh, There are some grammatical reasons for that. Do you want to go into those kinds of technicalities here on the podcast? Let's go into it briefly for a little bit, just for my audience who's wondering. Maybe you can point them to a resource they can use, if you know of one on this, if... I don't remember if you covered this one entirely in the book. I do touch on John one one mm-hmm. uh, in in my book, although a much more full and complete uh, study of this question is that by Murray J. Harris. Uh, yes. Uh, Jesus as God mm-hmm. in the New Testament. Uh, he gives a full chapter to John one one, and, and mm-hmm. his discussion is just about as technical as it's possible to go. Oh yes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, there are several good reasons why John wouldn't have used the article. Uh, to, just to make plain what we're saying here, most Greek nouns are referring to deity, uh, whether we're talking about theos, the word for God, or kurios, the word for Lord, they're usually used with an article, yeah, uh, equivalent to the word the in English that makes them definite. Uh, and so when the article isn't present, that can imply that the noun is indefinite, uh, but it doesn't always. In this yeah. case, John wants to make an mm-hmm. emphatic statement uh, that what God was, the word was, and so he brings the noun theos, the predicate, brings it forward into a prominent position uh, at the beginning of the clause. Now, when you when you do that for emphasis... Uh, the only way to make plain where the subject lies is to have the article with the subject and leave it off the predicate. Uh, so that's one reason why he doesn't have the article with the os. He mm-hmm. wants us uh, to know this is the predicate rather than the subject in that clause. Uh, another reason why he leaves the article off is because he wants to put emphasis not on God the Father as person, but on what God is as essence. Uh, There's a a slight nuance there. Uh, John doesn't want to claim that the Word of God, or Jesus, uh, is identical with the person of the Father, uh, the entity of the Father within the Trinity. Mm -hmm. He he wants us to, to know that Jesus is uh, what God is. He's of the same substance uh, or essence as his father, and one way to do that is to leave the article off, which makes it less concrete uh, and places emphasis more on the what uh, in the noun. Uh, so those are just a couple of reasons, but yeah, I would refer an interested reader to Murray Harris's book yeah. uh, on the subject of Jesus as God in the New Testament. He looks not only at this verse, but at uh, a whole range of other verses as well. Yes, it, for those interested, it is definitely a very good book. But I, I will agree with Dr. Rainbow. It is 
extremely in-depth and very, very technical. And I was saying I had to go to my Greek professor sometimes and say, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and have him explain it. Um, now, do you also think that John, at the beginning of his gospel, is pointing us as where to the Genesis account too? Because when we read, for instance, the Septuagint, the Greek translations of the Old Testament, and we read Genesis, it begins in R.K., in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And when we turn to the Gospel of John, lo and behold, it begins the exact same way. Yeah, there's no doubt, but that this is one of John's many allusions mm-hmm. Uh, to the Old Testament story. So he wants us uh, to understand Christ in the context of the the creation account of Genesis chapter 1. And therefore it would have been a little bit jarring, or at least curious. Uh, Anyone familiar with the Old Testament in the first century reading this would have uh, raised an eyebrow when John starts out in the beginning, but then instead of saying God created, uh, takes us off and, and tells us about the Word who was there with God and who acted as God's organ uh, for creating the world. Mm-hmm. And we can also at this point go to First John here where he even begins that epistle saying, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, the Word of Life. Mm-hmm. And he he's he's going to the he's going to that which is from the beginning, which the Jews would have thought God at first, and then he's saying we've heard and say, Okay, maybe we've heard God, or we could point to Mount Sinai, then when he says we've seen with our eyes, we've looked upon, and then our hands have touched then, you know, he's getting into something that's not entirely in line with what the any Jews would have thought of the Old Testament about the revelation of Christ. Uh, That's right. There's a very heavy emphasis in uh, that first first chapter of the first epistle of John uh, on uh, the empirical experience of the word of life uh, that John as an apostle had uh, when he encountered Jesus. What we have heard what we have seen with our eyes, looked at, and touched with our hands. There he refers to at least three senses. So there was a sensory experience uh, of something concerning the word of life. And uh, John doesn't claim there that we we encountered the word of life uh, in its full and naked reality, but that which was known to us through our experience, uh, we recognized as touching on the word of life. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, you also said that Jesus reveals the Father to us by his works. And this gets us into how in the Gospel of John, there are eight miracles altogether, seven signs, and then the resurrection. So how did these signs reveal to us God? Well, there's a theme running through all the miracles that Jesus did. Uh, they, They all one way or another indicate that he is the life giver Uh, and John has even told some of these stories in such a way as to place emphasis on that fact you know God is not only the living one the one who has life in himself but he's also the source of life wherever life 
is found. And so just to take an example, uh, toward the end of chapter 4, what John calls the second of Jesus' signs when he uh, when he healed the son of a royal official up there in Capernaum, healed him with a word. Now, John has told that story in such a way... Uh, it, uh, there's some debate about whether this is the same or a different uh, account uh, of Jesus uh, healing the... Uh, the uh, there was a, a centurion uh, up in Capernaum in the in the Synoptic Gospels as well. Um, mm-hmm. Is it the same or is it different? But we're, we're told in John four forty six the son lay ill, uh, and then the next verse tells us this the son was at the point of death, and then when the official repeats his request, says, "Sir, come down before my little boy dies." Now, Jesus turns it around in verse 50 by saying, Go, your son will live. And so the man started on his way. Uh, the uh, His his slaves come and meet him and tell him his child is alive. So he asked at what hour he began to recover. And just, just, just the repetition of the language through through that story. First, uh, the, the, the repeated emphasis on being close to death, uh, and then the repeated emphasis on now being alive. Uh, casts that miracle in a Johannine light, even if it is the same miracle that the Synoptic Gospels talk about. There's a much clearer emphasis here on Jesus as the life bringer, the life giver. Uh, and so that theme runs through all of them. Well, some of those miracles we could easily see. I mean, when we get to the resurrection of Lazarus, well, yeah, Jesus is definitely seen as a life giver there, but how about something like, say, the turning of water into wine at the wedding of Cana. How does that show Jesus as a life giver? Well, going back to the very first of his miracles, um, you know, this would be a case in point where we have to understand what he did in the light of the Old Testament uh, because there are passages in the prophets indicating that in the age to come or uh, at the end of this age, uh, when the messianic feast is held, there will be a great abundance uh, of all the good things that God gives. I'm thinking, for example, uh, of the description of the messianic meal uh, in Isaiah. Uh, looking for it here in my Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't have the same Bible with me that I use in my office. So my my eyes aren't finding it immediately here. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, we're we're sure it's there. So, what what are we supposed to draw? from it altogether. It talks about how there will be uh, a rich meal with fat food and wine on the leaves, well refined. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are other places in the prophets that talk about uh, how uh, every every Israelite will live under his vine and under his fig tree Mm -hmm. in the age to come, uh, referring to God's blessing on the land and the great abundance that he's going to give. Uh, and so when Jesus seized on the opportunity at a wedding feast where they had run out of wine uh, to create really uh, 
what is a remarkable amount of wine, uh, way beyond what they needed to finish that wedding feast, uh, he was sort of making a statement uh, in his person as God's agent. Uh, God is beginning to fulfill these promises uh, about abundance. And, and so there is uh, a tie-in even there with the theme of life. Uh, God who gives all good things and who showers gifts on his people uh, is mm -hmm. giving this gift at that wedding feast at that time. Mm-hmm. And Clint, we also point to a passage, like, I think it's in Psalm 104, where it says that he gives wine to gladden us. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Wine to gladden. <laughs> yeah, Psalm 104. Now, we could also point out that when we get to the feeding of the 5,000, that this could also be understood easily as a life giver since that would parallel the manna in the wilderness. And he calls himself the bread of life yeah. in that chapter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, here, here's the passage I was looking for and not finding. It's in Isaiah 25, uh, verses 6 and 7. And you'll see the connection with life right there. On this mountain is the promise. Uh, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, mm -hmm of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. He will destroy on this mountain the shroud that's cast over all peoples, the sheet that's spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. So in one breath, there's the promise of a feast. Uh, in the next breath, God will destroy death. Uh, right there, uh, the wine is a symbol of the life uh, that God has to share with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After the feeding of the 5,000, though, there's another miracle that takes place, and that has Jesus walking on the water. So how does that show Jesus as a life giver? Well, even there, yeah, there's one little detail in John's account that we don't find in the others. Is that one where Jesus has the I am statement? Uh, that's not the one I'm thinking of, although that is there. Uh, here we are. He identifies himself. It is I. Uh, then it says they wanted to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. Uh, John is the only one who tells us about this immediate arrival at their destination. So uh, the picture is that the disciples got into the boat without Jesus late at night started on their way across they got caught in a strong wind that opposed them uh, and so uh, when Jesus did meet them uh, they reached the land toward which they were going again that's that's a function it's a kind of life function mm -hmm. uh, reaching one's destination having one's life preserved from the danger of the storm mm-hmm you know, since I did bring up that one statement, though, also, you should say something briefly about the numerous I am statements in the Gospel of John. Also, what are we to make of these I am statements? Well, in the same way that there are uh, seven signs, uh, there are a number of places, often in connection with those signs, where Jesus... Uh, says either 
I am the bread of life, I am the true vine, I am the way, the truth, and the life, uh, where he'll say, I am, and then he puts in some kind of a predicate. Uh, there are also some places where he simply identifies himself using the expression, I am. Uh, end of chapter 8. Before Abraham was, he says, I am. It's a strange use of tense. Mm -hmm. uh, and so many, many expositors of John's Gospel uh, hear in this repeated I am of Jesus uh, a claim going back to Exodus chapter 3 where God identified himself in that way. When, when he was calling Moses, Moses uh, asked God, What is your name? Uh, when I go tell the people of Israel that you've sent me, they're going to ask me who it is who sent me, so what shall I say about your name? And God says, I am who I am, Ehyeh, Asher, Ehyeh, in Hebrew. Um, and, and so many hear Jesus as claiming uh, to be that figure. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> we've talked a lot about Jesus, and we've talked about a lot about the Father, but we haven't really got to say much about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit plays a really important role in the thought of John also, doesn't it? He. Yeah, John probably gives us the most concrete uh, picture of the Holy Spirit of any writer in the New Testament, uh, which is one reason why John's theology is often regarded as the pinnacle of New Testament theology, because we have such a clear Trinitarianism in John, uh, the Father distinguished from the Son, both the Father and the Son distinguished from the Spirit uh, as a sort of concrete person, uh, and yet still one God at the end of the day. So, for example, in John chapter 14, um, Verse 23, Jesus says, Those who love me will keep my word. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Uh, all of that in a context where Jesus is promising to send the Holy Spirit who will abide with the believers and be in them. Uh, and so the Father and the Son come in the person of the Holy Spirit uh, to be an abiding presence in the heart of the believer. Now, since this is said before the death and resurrection of Jesus, what would the what would the apostles have known of and thought about the Holy Spirit at that point? Well, the Holy Spirit uh, is in the Old Testament as well, or the mm -hmm. Hebrew Scriptures. There, he's, uh, he's usually called the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Yahweh. Mm -hmm. uh, and there, too, he comes upon people and enables them to do sort of superhuman things. Uh, Gideon is uh, a recipient of the Holy Spirit, and, and this enables Gideon with such a small army of only about 300 men to overthrow a much larger army of, of Midianites uh, and so forth. Uh, also, the prophets of the Old Testament claim the Spirit of the Lord is upon me mm -hmm. uh, as the one who gives the revelation from God. And so they would have known uh, 
that there is a Spirit of God, they would also have known the promises of the Old Testament uh, that at the end of time, God was going to pour out his Spirit uh, on all flesh. One thinks, for example, of Joel uh, chapter 2 toward the end, a wonderful prophecy uh, in which the entire people of God become prophetic uh, and able to have dreams and uh, visions and so forth. Uh, and so there would have been a rich understanding of many things that the Holy Spirit does. Uh, what's new in the New Testament uh, is that the Holy Spirit points people to Jesus as God's supreme revelation. The Holy Spirit's ministry always is to accompany God's revelation of himself mm-hmm. uh, and, and sort of open up the human heart Uh, so that we're able to see and understand and perceive uh, what what God is trying to say. If uh, in the Old Testament, the word, uh, the word of promise, the word of law, uh, that's God's way of revealing himself. And the the role of the Holy Spirit was to enter the human heart and and awaken it subjectively uh, to hear and perceive and appreciate the voice of God speaking in that word. Uh, Likewise, when Jesus then comes into the world as God's Son, the role of the Spirit still uh, is to work in the human heart, opening it so that we can perceive Jesus as God's revelation and respond appropriately. Uh, So the Holy Spirit is really critical uh, to God's self-revelation, not not that he's an objective revelation. It's not that he, he adds anything to the content of what God wants to say, but he's the subjective presence of God that makes us receptive uh, to God's uh, communication of himself. Mm-hmm. Was there any kind of inkling in Jewish thought before Jesus came of something that would be seen like a Trinitarian idea of the, the Holy Spirit being equal to God the Father in nature, or did this come about after our understanding of Christ? Well, it's certainly much clarified, at any rate, uh, after the revelation of Mm. Jesus. Um, I mean, we do have, we have, even in the pre-Christian period, there were some Jews who played with uh, the idea that there might be entities of one sort or another within the divine being. Mm -hmm. Uh, they They never come down on the number three as such. Uh, but I think, for example, of uh, a book not found in the Protestant canon. Uh, it is found in the Roman Catholic, uh, the larger Roman Catholic canon, uh, the deuterocanonical books, uh, The Wisdom of Solomon. Mm-hmm. Uh, in chapters 7 and 8, uh, the author who wrote that speculates on wisdom, uh, oh, as yes. divine wisdom as being a radiance uh, from the divine being. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in places talks about wisdom as though she's kind of a consort uh, beside God's throne whom he can send into the world to do his work for him and that kind of thing. Uh, and so there's a lot of debate among Old Testament as well as New Testament scholars about uh, you know, j- just how, how much of a hypostasis do we have here? Is this just colorful? Uh, oriental language for a divine attribute, or is this actually some kind of a uh, some kind of a being uh, that's being split off from the Father, uh, 
um, as a separate entity within the divine being. Uh, Philo is another one. Philo, the Jewish philosopher, uh, speculated about the divine logos. Mm-hmm. Uh, said at one point that he straddles uh, straddles the gap between the eternal and the temporal, uh, between that which is uncreated and that which is created. Uh, well, no one knows for sure what he meant. Uh, we don't even know if his thought was very clear to him. Uh, but it, it does seem that there were Jews, uh, at least in, in intellectual circles, who played with the idea that, that the divine unity might not be a simple unity. It might be a, uh, a unity of several uh, personal entities of one sort or another. Mm-hmm. And so when Jesus was sent into the world, uh, the, the, there was even something in Judaism uh, that would have enabled the Jews to appreciate this and take a step toward Trinitarianism. <clears throat> I'd like to remind my audience at this point that you are listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. My guest this week is Dr. Paul Rainbow. We're talking about the book Johannian Theology. Now, uh, if you're listening next week, that's going to be the question. Our original guest had the cancer, and so I, I've spoken with someone else and that's uh, Bob Stewart, who could come on and talk about apologetics and the upcoming conference in New Orleans, the Defend the Faith Conference. If not, well, I'm going to be in Atlanta with my in-laws either way. And so if he can't make it, I'm just going to spend Christmas with them entirely that way. And then you're here a show again, I'm sure, on the 3rd of January sometime but I really hope next week I'll be able to bring you Bob Stewart talking about the Defend the Faith Conference for now we've got Dr. Paul Rainbow here we're going to keep talking about theology and John now when it comes to the Holy Spirit today what role should the Holy Spirit play or what role should we see him playing in our lives today as Christians Well, the promise in John 14 is that he will be with you and will be in you. Uh, So the Holy Spirit is the presence of God in the human heart, uh, enabling us to see God for who he is and Mm -hmm. respond to God's self-revelation. Apart from the Holy Spirit, John's Gospel presents us uh, as being blind in sin, walking in darkness, uh, unable to see the light of life. Uh, It also presents us as being in bondage. And so the Spirit comes into the human life uh, as a liberating force, liberating us from the power of sin, uh, opening us up uh, so that we're no longer blind uh, and enabling us to, uh, to say yes to God when he makes a promise. Does it seem to you that many of us don't really realize the gift that we've been given if we're Christians? Because the Holy Spirit, as you said in the Old Testament, only came upon select individuals for a select time and for a select purpose, and then, well, that was it. But when we get to the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes to the average, everyday Christian and takes up a permanent residency in us. Yes, that's right. I'm sure many of us uh, don't fully appreciate Mm -hmm. uh, the the overwhelming gift that we've been given. Mm -hmm. 
In the Holy Spirit also is he's usually seen as the silent member of the Trinity. There are only a few places that I also can only think of one in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit is said to speak. But every mm-hmm. other case he's pointing to the Son or to the Father. What's your thoughts on that? Yes, I, I think that would be a fair way to describe the work of the Holy Spirit. Um. Mm-hmm. Now, when you were also speaking about <clears throat> sin, that, that brings us also to an important topic. How does uh, John view our problem, I mean, the main problem of sin? That's pretty much for him what's made the world be so fallen, isn't it? <clears throat> yes, it is. Uh, John doesn't doesn't retell the Genesis account of the temptation of Adam and Eve as such, but he presupposes it again and again. Uh, he calls Satan the father of lies, a liar from the beginning. Uh, yeah, the human race, uh, having decided against God, having tried to to go it alone apart from God. Uh, has fallen under the influence of uh, the devil. Uh, John calls him the ruler of this world. Uh, And the devil holds the human race uh, in his thrall um, in darkness, in ignorance, uh, so much so that uh, having become sinners and cut off from God, Uh, We aren't even aware of the fact uh, that we are alienated from the source of our life. Uh, And the devil does play a prominent role in the thought of John that John clearly sees this as a sort of battle of good and evil. Of course, he's, it's obvious for him which side is going to win this battle. That's never under, discu- that's never under doubt, but he's, mm-hmm. it's clear in either way there is a battle that is going on. Yeah, that's right. Uh, John speaks several times in the Gospel of the devil. Uh, maybe most concretely when he's talking about Judas and he says the devil entered into him on the night when he went out into the darkness to betray his Lord. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also in in the epistles, uh, the devil is the one who who put Cain up to killing his his brother. Uh, And in the book of Revelation, of course, uh, the devil is pictured as a great dragon uh, who who gets cast down out of heaven by Michael and his angels. We get the most apocalyptic imagery mm-hmm. uh, about the, the devil in the book of Revelation. Toward the very end of the book, he gets chained up for a thousand years mm-hmm. and then released uh, to create trouble in the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the devil is very much in John's thought world uh, a personal being uh, who is malevolent uh, and whose goal is to try to undermine God if he can, 
and all of all of the the wonderful plans and purposes that God has in store uh, for the world that He made. Mm-hmm. It's something interesting also <clears throat> in Revelation. Something I pointed out to my own wife one time and said, "Yeah, this is how we should kind of view the devil more often." Remember, in the book of Revelation, it only takes one angel to bind the devil for a thousand years. It's not mm-hmm. like God has to step in and do it himself. I mean, he, he can send an angel to do it. So, yeah, it's not like this is some sort of battle that God has to do all the work in. But God can assign just one angel to take care of it. Yeah, that's right. In in John's thought world, there is no real rival to the mm-hmm. one God himself. Right. God is sovereign over everything he made. Mm-hmm. Uh, insofar as the devil has a rival, or, or uh, insofar as, as there's rivalry at all, it would be between uh, the devil and Michael. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the picture we get in chapter 12. Michael and his angels going forth to wage war against uh, Satan or the devil and his angels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, Michael and his angels uh, win hands down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but John is not a dualist in in the ultimate sense of the word. That is, he doesn't have a universe in which the one God uh, is opposed by some kind of equal uh, being, as in uh, Iranian dualism or Zoroastrianism. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in John's thought world, uh, the the duel between light and darkness takes place on the stage of the creation itself all of it being under God's sovereignty. Uh, and so God in his majesty remains uh, unchallengeable uh, above the entire battle. Mm-hmm. And since we're getting close to that time of year here, I'm kind of curious what you might think of <clears throat> this view here, since it's one that I hold that. When I look at Revelation 12, that battle going on, I actually see it as the Christmas story and John's view of it with Herod being the one the devil uses to try to kill the baby Jesus when he's born. Uh, You're thinking of Revelation 12 where the dragon stood before the woman hoping to devour her offspring as soon as it was to be born? Yep. Uh, Well, yes. uh, Herod's Herod's attempt to kill all the boy child, uh, all the the male children in the Mm -hmm. Bethlehem area uh, could have been a fulfillment of that of that big image. Mm-hmm. Now there might be other fulfillments as well. John in the book of Revelation uh, uses picture language uh, in such a way that there might well be multiple multiple fulfillments in time, uh, but that would would probably be one. I mm-hmm. would think yes. Mm-hmm. I like to see it as a sort of cosmic Christmas tale. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What we forget around Christmas time is that the coming of the incarnation is actually, we could say, it's God's act of war on the works of the devil. Yeah, that brings up another uh, another big theme in the fourth gospel, uh, namely that Jesus is God's witness. Mm-hmm. Uh, often, as Jesus, often Jesus is spoken of as bearing witness to things mm-hmm. and that language conjures up uh, a sort of courtroom scene mm-hmm. in which God has uh, 
a lawsuit going with the world that has now rejected him uh, and God has entered into this lawsuit in order to prove himself right and the world wrong mm -hmm. uh, so yes there is a, a conflict of that sort cosmic conflict uh, that goes until the end of time mm -hmm. and that's also where we see a passage such as if you believe Moses and a prophet you would believe in me because they spoke about me and since you don't believe in me you don't really believe Moses and the prophets mm-hmm mm -hmm. yeah anyone who who really caught all the principles that Moses and the prophets were laying out mm -hmm. uh, would have no difficulty responding to the fulfillment uh, of God's redemptive plan when it arrived in the person of Christ now that can also bring us then to what you have a section on coming to Christ since this is ultimately God's solution to the problem of sin and evil in the world is Christ and the way one partakes of that solution is to come to him mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah John uses a variety of terms to come to Christ or to believe in Christ uh, or to obey uh, is another one mm -hmm. um keeping his commandments uh, he uses quite a number of phrases but they all sort of center on receiving being receptive to uh, the word of revelation that God sent into the world in the person of his son mm -hmm. now some people could get confused at this point so I'm say well, we're supposed to believe in salvation by grace through faith and yet part of coming to Christ is keeping his commandments wouldn't that be work salvation Well, that that gets us into a big mm. uh, discussion right now. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, interesting, at the end of John 3, uh, the very same chapter where in the famous verse 16, uh, John places emphasis uh, on believing in him. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, mm -hmm. uh, but have eternal life. There it would seem that, that believing is the be-all and end-all of salvation. And yet in the last verse of that chapter, we have this interesting contrast. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Uh, that, that's a familiar thought. But whoever disobeys the Son will not see life but must endure God's wrath. So, positively, whoever believes has life. Negatively, whoever disobeys uh, will not see life. Uh, believing and disobedience are the opposites, which is a strange way of putting things. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think one can only assume uh, that in John's mind, uh, belief naturally expresses itself in the form of obedience. Uh, and if there's unbelief, it will be expressed in the form of disobedience to God's will and commandments. Uh, and so for him, it's it's all uh, six of one, half a dozen of the other. Whether whether he says salvation is through through faith uh, expressed in obedience, or whether uh, a person comes to condemnation through unbelief expressed in disobedience. We got uh, go ahead. Well, go, go ahead and, and take us further. I was also thinking of a passage in John 6 where he says, to, where they ask what's the work that God requires, and he says, 
to believe in what one God has sent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably the the one place in John's writings where he comes closer than any other to a Pauline uh, type of emphasis on faith. Uh, the Jews ask Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus says, well, the work of God is that you believe on the one whom he has sent. Uh, there's a similar verse to that in the first epistle of John, chapter 3, kind of a summary verse. Mm -hmm. I'm just looking it up here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, First uh, John 3.23, our author says, This is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. And if we stop reading there, we would get the impression uh, that the one and only thing God commands us to do is, is believe. Uh, but then the text goes on immediately to say, And love one another just as he commanded us. So uh, his single commandment, is that we should believe and love. Mm. Uh, so the sing single commandment has two sides to it, apparently, uh, believing and expressing that belief uh, in the form of love, which, of course, uh, ramifies then uh, into all the commandments. <clears throat> Where when we uh, see this kind of thing, then I guess what we could say is that what John is thinking is that he can't imagine someone being a believer in Christ and not honoring the commands of Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <clears throat> to believe is uh, to to put that belief, mm -hmm. uh, to put feet to it uh, by obeying what he says. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think of it'd be just like getting married to, some, to someone and then coming home with them and not treating them like a spouse at all. I mean, it, it, it doesn't take a lot to get married. It's very simple to get married, really. But to be a good spouse, that takes a whole lot more. That's right. Mm -hmm. And so in one sense, uh, our salvation is completely free, costs us nothing. But in another sense, it costs us, costs us everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's free, but it's expensive, both. Yeah. Now, I'd like to <clears throat> take a brief little break at this point here before moving on to our next topic of discussion to let everyone know that the Deeper Waters podcast is entirely listener-supported. I, I don't get any pay for what I do. I don't have the means to pay my guests when they come on, and they come on freely of their own time. And so we really encourage you to support us financially. And some of you have been doing that this month. I suspect as end-of-a-year giving gets closer, that this is a good time to do that. And your donations to us are tax-deductible. How do you donate? Well, if you go to deeperwaters.wordpress.com, which is my blog site, and you click the Donate button, you'll get taken to the ministry of Mike Lacona, Risen Jesus. Have you gone to the right place? Yes, yes, you have. What you do is you can make a donation there, and then you contact me or you contact 
Mike or his wife Debbie and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters of Deeper Waters. And we will make sure that that donation does go to us. And it, it is tax deductible, like I said, entirely. And we get it every penny. From that point on, we, we do all we can to make the most of it. And also, you can buy some of the ebooks that I've got. The latest one, of course, here is the one I co up with JP Holding on Defining Inerrancy. Uh, there was another one that's due out soon on the problem of evil where I did a debate with an atheist, a written debate, and we put that together in an ebook form. And it, it's being worked on, it should be here soon. And also, I've got another one that I'm just having someone who was on the show before, Robert Kolb. He's writing the foreword to it, and that's my book on the Apostles' Creed. And that'll be out soon, and I hope you'll be picking that one up. And then finally, at our <coughs> store, at our link also at the blog page, there's a link for uh, the Amazon store to our account. And when you go there, you can purchase books that have been on the show before, for wherever offers have been on the show that we've talked about them. For and when you buy the books that way. I will get a small part of a portion of what you buy, so why not do it that way? But please be supportive of what we do here. It really means a lot that we have your encouragement and be willing to give. Uh, Dr. Rainbow, do you have any organization you'd like to encourage people to give to also? Well, I give to a number of charitable organizations, but one, one of my favorites is Compassion International. Mm-hmm. Uh, it helps children, uh, usually in the third world, who come from underprivileged families, to get an education and go on and become contributing members of their societies. And it's all done in a context where uh, they receive gifts uh, attached to presentations of the gospel. Okay. Well, so uh, if you're interested in donating to Dr. Rainbow's organization is like a Compassion International, and it certainly sounds like a worthy organization to support. Now, getting back to to the book, uh, we've talked about coming to Christ. One, t the next chapter there that's important to talk about is abiding in Christ, and this is one that can cause Christians a lot of discomfort. So I'm sure, like me, you've met several Christians who really wrestle with the question of their salvation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're raising the issue of assurance. How can right. I be sure mm -hmm. that I am saved? Mm -hmm. uh, that becomes a major theme in John's first epistle, as mm -hmm. a matter of fact. Again yep. and again in his first epistle, he'll say, uh, by this we know, and then he'll lay down some kind of a criterion uh, and the interesting thing is that uh, the same uh, criteria uh, are given there for knowing that we're saved as are given for uh, being a, an authentic disciple of Jesus, namely uh, profession of orthodox faith in Jesus uh, and obeying his commandments or righteousness uh, and loving members of the Christian community. Uh, the, the Johannine trilogy of virtues are truth, goodness, and love. 
uh, and those three things become the things uh, by which we know that we have eternal life. Now you could say, uh, if I look at my life, I actually see kind of a checkered picture. There might be uh, there might be some things that I've done that were good, uh, but I also still see some sins in my life. Oh yes. Uh, and, and I also see that I don't always love my brother or my sister the way mm-hmm. I should. And so how can I how can I get any assurance uh, by looking at those things? Uh, but John's John's first epistle uh, does point to the the wonderful provision that has been made for us. Uh, he says in his second chapter, uh, he writes these things so that we might not commit sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So uh, John John knows all of that. He knows that we, uh, that we continue to have temptations and, and we continue to fall from time to time. Uh, and he points us to the fact that God has already made provision in sending Christ into the world. So... Yeah, you know, ultimately our salvation has to depend on what Jesus did for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Jesus expired on the cross, he said, "It is finished," meaning that he had done everything that the Father uh, commissioned him to do on sending him into the world, and and so the redemption of sinners uh, ultimately rests in the hands of God and what He wrought in Christ. Uh, how do I know that I'm in Christ? How do I know that I'm actually abiding in Him? Uh, well, that's where we use these criteria uh, that the book of 1 John lays out for us. Uh, and there's a verse that addresses this issue quite directly. First uh, John 4 verse 17 and 18. Uh, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment. So, you know, as we look forward to the coming day of judgment, uh, how can we work up uh, any confidence uh, that we're going to be judged positively? Well, John goes on to say, uh, because as he is, so are we in -hmm. this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the Christian is to be an imitator of Christ uh, in everything that he said and did. Uh, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. So knowing that God loved us before we ever could have loved him, uh, that his love is the undergirding uh, and enabling thing uh, that brought us to conversion in the first place. Uh, therefore, we we proceed to imitate his son, and as we do that, uh, better and better, more and more, uh, we grow in our confidence uh, that on the day of judgment, uh, God will say, uh, yes, this is my child. And what about, though, a passage such as when we get to First John 3, 
where he says, No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. And that can terrify some people as well. I know several guys, for instance, who seek to be good, godly Christians, and they really struggle with internet pornography a lot. Mm-hmm. Or something like that. They could look at that and say, I'm struggling, I'm struggling, I'm going to get past this, I'm just having a hard time, but if I keep going back to this, doesn't that mean I'm not born of God since I'm continuing to sin? Well, that is a striking verse, isn't it? First John 3, 9. Those mm-hmm. who have been born of God mm-hmm. do not sin because God's seed abides in them. And then especially when he says they cannot sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they have been born of God. If you take that out of its context in this book and in its own chapter, it might sound as if a Christian is supposed to be a perfect person who never, ever falls. Uh, and that's why it's so important, you know, that the Johannine literature is written in such a way uh, that John often makes a kind of striking or uh, bold statement like that in one place, uh, and he doesn't necessarily qualify it uh, in the immediate verses around, uh, but if you read the book as a whole, uh, then you find him saying other things that make the picture just a little bit more complicated. Uh, so going back to chapter 1, of course, uh, he says, uh, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in it. So in the one place... Uh, we, we have, if we're honest with ourselves, if we take an honest inventory of our life, we'll find sin there. Uh, on the other hand, he turns around in chapter three, verse nine, uh, and says that those who have God's seed abiding in them cannot sin. Well, what does he mean in this context? He has said earlier in that chapter, just a few verses earlier, uh, verse two. Uh, we are God's children now. What we will be, that is, in the day of resurrection, uh, has not yet been revealed. We don't know the details of the glorified existence. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. That's our hope. And then we get verse 3. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So John seems to view the Christian life as a journey uh, of of increasing purification, progressive purification. Uh, We're sort of moving from uh, a sinful existence toward a sinless existence. And as long as we live in this body, we have not yet attained uh, to the completely sinless existence. So in verse 9, Uh, when he says they cannot sin because they have been born of God, he can't mean they never commit sins. Uh, He must mean something like this, that that they cannot sort of uh, rest in. Uh, They can't just settle down in sins and be satisfied. Uh, The the Christian is a person who who is feeling the constant momentum of God's Spirit uh, moving us onward toward the light. and I would I would interpret that verse in that uh, in that kind of a framework. I think. So, what would you say to the average listener listening to the show and 
might be thinking, you know, I'm I'm really struggling with my salvation a lot because I look at my life and I don't really love my brother the way I should. I, I see a lot of sin and I wonder if, you know, I, I prayed the right prayer, if I said the right things, I did the right things. And do you, what would you say to such a person? Because I, I know from my own personal experience that kind of worry can be something that really shuts someone down entirely. Mm-hmm. So what should someone do if they're worrying like that? <clears throat> Well, this is a pastoral issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what John would say in the first place is, if we confess our sins, uh, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So mm-hmm. uh, we have to give our sins to God and mm-hmm. let Him deal with them. There's also a, a very helpful verse uh, that comes in that chapter 3 of 1 John, a little ways down from where we just were, uh, when he says uh, in verse 18 and following, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. By this we know that we are from the truth, and we reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Uh, so, yeah, John John knows that there are people, uh, and, and probably all of us at one time or another, uh, look at our own life, uh, and we take inventory, and we wonder, uh, how could it be that God is really at work in me? Uh, but there we're assured that God is greater than our heart. God knows all the factors in our lives uh, that move us to these doubts. Uh, mm-hmm. He loves us anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he wants to reassure our hearts before him. And so he calls us to confess those sins and then uh, to recommit ourselves to loving our brother and our sister. Uh, and over the course of time, as we do that, uh, we begin to see him at work uh, and we our, our assurance can grow. But, uh, you know, Christian assurance in itself, just like uh, just like the, the work of purification, uh, is a progressive thing. Uh, those who have walked with the Lord for a longer amount of time mm-hmm. uh, faithful in responding to his commandments mm-hmm. uh, do gain a greater assurance than those who are just starting the journey mm-hmm. Yeah, personally also it's been my experience that when I meet someone who's really struggling about this I usually see that as an excellent sign that they are in the faith because if you weren't why would you really care? The reason that this matters so much to you is because of the love of Christ you already have. Mm-hmm, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, having, having questions about whether I'm in or whether I'm out uh, are, are themselves, uh, that, 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 that kind of questioning is itself an indication that the person is uh, on the way. Now, when we get to the next chapter, you're talking in that one about the disciples of Christ in community, which is covered quite a lot in First John. Something we're talking about here that love is supposed to be the ultimate sign of the disciples of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's one of the 
characteristic things about John's writing is the mm-hmm. way he boils all of Christian ethics down to the single command to love the brother. Uh, you know, in the, in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus boils the law, uh, the Torah, down to two commandments, loving God and loving one's neighbor, uh, Deuteronomy 6.4 and Leviticus 19.18. Jesus takes those two commands together uh, and says that all the law and the prophets hang on them. Uh, but in the Johannine literature, starting in John's Gospel, chapter 13, and moving on into the epistle, uh, it, it's it's even simpler, uh, where it all comes down to loving one's brother, uh, the, the fellow member of the Christian community, as Jesus loved us. Mm-hmm. And this is something that we said that a lot of people do struggle with, because we can look and see unloving attitudes that we often have a lot of times you know as a man who uh, who I would say yeah I love my wife and many times yet still I can look at myself and say well that attitude I've got right now but that sure isn't a loving attitude to have Mm, mm mm-hmm well I think John would uh, would just advise us uh, if, if I'm aware of an unloving attitude, mm-hmm. I'm to confess that sin and then recommit myself to the process of purification mm-hmm. uh, and the practice of love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and very helpful that he uh, he conceives of love typically in terms of doing things for people. Let mm-hmm. us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. Uh, so even if I don't uh, feel good about somebody, uh, I can still do good for them. I can still act in such a way as to affirm them and bring life to them. Uh, and in doing so, usually the feelings turn around in the end. Yeah, Usually, <clears throat> we can have a misconception of what love is a lot of times as well. We, we tend to think love is a feeling. Mm-hmm. And in John's view, love is an action. It could end in feelings, but very many times it might not end in feelings. So what is the view of John about love and his works, and how does it differ from what we usually think of today? Well, it's true in, in the popular media. Uh, you know, If you listen to the love songs, uh, they're highly sentimental. Uh, and one gets the impression that love is nothing more than having fluttery feelings about somebody. Uh, but uh, John never defines love for us. It's, it's, uh, that's another characteristic of his writing, that he doesn't usually define things. He just uses words and expects mm-hmm. us uh, sort of to pick up from the way he uses them what he means by them. But I think a, a fair uh, description of John's concept of love is that it would be a, a passionate commitment to someone's welfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, after all, is is how God loved the world. Uh, he sent his son into the world to redeem it, uh, even though the world was not deserving of that redemption. God acted in our favor and for our sake. Um, so as to affirm our existence and the value of our life in his sight. Uh, And so we're to do that 
for one another as well, a passionate commitment to one another. And I'm 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 throwing in that word passionate just to capture uh, the fact that uh, I don't know if you can really love without feelings at all. Uh, love is never just a, a sort of cold and clinical uh, action, uh, completely divorced from feeling, but it, it's always a feeling which is expressed uh, in the creative and constructive uh, activity that brings life to another person. So a passionate commitment to someone's welfare, uh, someone's life in the deepest and truest sense. It has been said uh, some before that love is for seeking the good of the other for the sake of the other. Mm-hmm. One, one example I used to think about this is in marriage and this is one that I think sadly we all too often fail at and what I've told my wife is for like the way things are really supposed to work ideally is that you are to be focused on my good for the sake of my good and I am to be focused on your good for the sake of your good and in the end we both get what we want in that way. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's some wisdom in that, I think. Mm. Now, when we talk about love in the in the epistles of John, he brings it to the highest level, in fact, in the fourth chapter of the first epistle, where he says, God is love. What What is he saying there? Well, he's saying that God is, in his essence, love in action. Mm-hmm. Uh, God's nature is always to communicate uh, his own life to another. Uh, and so he demonstrated this in eternity past uh, by what, what we call the eternal generation of the Son. There was never a time uh, when the Son of God didn't exist. Uh, but uh, the reason why we speak of a father and a son is because the father communicates all that he is uh, to his son. Uh, the son is derivative in that sense. Uh, in, in the gospel, John puts it this way, that the father has life in himself, but he has granted to his son to have life in himself, to be all that God is uh, in himself. And so God loved the son eternally, and out of that eternal love was born uh, the creation of the world, uh, and God loves the world. Uh, Jesus has loved the world uh, and, and gave his life for it. Uh, and now, uh, as the chain continues, we're to, we're to imitate Jesus' love by loving one another. Mm-hmm. Now, when we get to the end of the book, we also see how this is supposed to be an impact on the world. And sadly, I think we can all say when it comes to the church being an example of the love of Christ, at least here in America, in too many ways, we haven't really done too good a job of that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can always do better. There's mm-hmm. no doubt about that. And uh, if we look at church history, it's a it's a checkered picture mm-hmm. as well. Uh, yeah. But when we also look, we... At, at what John has to say, we do see the church, though a loving community, is also in constant conflict with the war. There is war going on. Mm. Yeah. 
the the world doesn't appreciate the church mm-hmm. uh, in John's outlook mm-hmm. uh, because the church consists of people whom God has chosen out of the world and in whom God has begun uh, to work in a new way. And so anywhere that there is truth or righteousness mm-hmm. or love, uh, these things appear as the opposites of what the world is, and the world uh, loves its own, but it doesn't love uh, that which is alien to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, especially in places like John's Gospel, chapter 15, uh, the church has to expect sooner or later uh, to be treated with hostility uh, as long as this current world lasts. And we see it especially in the book of Revelation, uh, where there is actually a combat motif uh, in the latter part of the book. Uh, uh, even some of the imagery is, is almost military. Now, I don't think that means that uh, we, should, we, we should take it literally. I don't think it means there's ever going to be uh, necessarily a, a, an earthly battle uh, between the church and mm-hmm. the rest of the world. Uh, but there certainly is uh, a spiritual battle uh, from age to age. I've often said before that we need to do to have that kind of combat mentality, though, in essence, we realize we're at war, and that if we were really doing things, probably in many cases, we'd come to church wearing battle gear, realizing we're getting our marching orders for the week there in we're learning how we're supposed to fight in this battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, just to, just to choose one sort of characteristic verse mm-hmm. out of Revelation chapter 17, mm-hmm. uh, describing the kings of the earth. Uh, this is Revelation 17:14. It says, They will make war on the Lamb, representing Christ, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So the Lamb has his army, the kings of the earth uh, have their armies, metaphorically speaking, uh, and they go at it, and the Lamb is the one who will triumph in the end. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking about the world opposing the church also, uh, can but think of that. Uh, I do have a Facebook friend put this meme up on his page using a couple of people talking and one of them saying, if you'd act acting more like Jesus, everybody would love you. And the reply was, they crucified Jesus. <laughs> That's right. We, we do have this idea that if we're doing everything we're supposed to be doing, living like Christ, that... The world would just respond to us positively. Now, in some ways, it, it's, uh, yeah, they'll know that we're his disciples by our love, but it doesn't mean they'll appreciate that fact. And some could be impressed by it, but some could just get more hostile to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jesus himself says, uh, as they've treated me, they will treat you. Some mm-hmm. have accepted Jesus' word, mm-hmm. uh, but others didn't. Uh, and the church should expect that same kind of division everywhere it carries the gospel. Some mm-hmm. will some will respond positively, others will not. Uh, and the proportion might be quite different in different places. Sometimes a majority of people 
uh, in a new mission field will respond to the gospel, but in other places only very few. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we could also say, though, that some people, I think, have a false idea of love because love doesn't ignore sin, and neither does Jesus or any of the writers. And I just think if we're loving to people, we won't tell them what they're doing wrong. We're, we'll just let them be in. For John, I'm pretty sure you say that's that's one of the last things a loving person would do. Mm-hmm. Well, John John considered himself a prophet. This comes out in the book of Revelation where he classifies himself uh, among the prophets. And one of the functions of prophecy is to expose and shame sin uh, with a view to bringing people to repentance. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the goal is always to heal, always to restore. Uh, but yes, there does have to be sometimes... Uh, uh, a hard-hitting exposure uh, to bring that end about. Isn't this kind of part of the problem we've seen in the warfare between the church and the war that too often too many of the church want to compromise on some issues and say, well, we don't want to speak anything about that because that just doesn't strike us as too loving and Usually in our day and age, it seems to be a lot of the sexual sins that come up, such as when we're dealing with abortion or homosexuality or even divorce and cohabitation and things like that. We get this idea of, well, who are we to judge? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the themes in the book of Revelation has to do with martyrdom. Uh, mm-hmm. When... Uh, when the Lamb opened the fifth seal, uh, John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony they had given. Uh, so he's well aware that if we remain faithful and if we speak truth uh, and if we do good and if we are truly loving toward one another, uh, then the inevitable result uh, will be that in places, at least, uh, some of us will become martyrs. And so the book of Revelation does have uh, some strong promises and encouragements uh, for us uh, to hang fast and, and not give up our, our the truth of our confession, uh, but to, uh, to be faithful all the way to the end. Uh, As Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia in, or no, I'm thinking of his message to Smyrna uh, in chapter 2 of the book of Revelation, uh, verse 10. He says, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Mm-hmm. So that that kind of summarizes the exhortation of the whole book of Revelation. Be faithful to the point of death. I'll give you the crown of life. And when we're talking about the suffering that will happen, it does fit in with John's theology that we can expect suffering. In fact, at the end of the 16th chapter of John, he says, "In this world, you will have suffering." So, mm-hmm. And says, uh, "But before I says." they will hate you because they think they're doing me a service. 
or doing God a service rather. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, he's saying, like, suffering is a reality, it's going to come, it's going to happen, and he says, fear not, I have overcome the world. So he's saying, he, he's not denying the suffering's going to happen, but he's saying something greater than the suffering is mm-hmm. going to happen also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you touched on an interesting uh, thought there, uh, where people will think that they're actually serving God, Uh, when they deal harshly with the Christian church. In other words, uh, the world has its principles by which it abides too, uh, and the world is often just as um, almost even dogmatically certain of its position uh, as Mm -hmm. we Christians are, uh, just as committed to it. And and in in their own eyes, they believe they're doing the right thing when they contradict uh, what the Word of God teaches. Mm-hmm. Uh. Yeah, uh, G.K. Cheston once said that he, there are only two kinds of people in the world, those who, who are openly dogmatic and those who are not. He says, and I've known that ones who usually tend to deny being dogmatic are often ones who are most dogmatic. Mm, I think that's true. Mm-hmm. So, in John's view, we are supposed to be a community of love, not just to fellow believers, but to those on the outside. But uh, on the other hand, we are to make zero compromises in the area of sin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we may have to pay some consequences, therefore. So, how is it, then, that you think the disciples of Christ can do better to illustrate the love of God to the world around them. Well, John's concept of uh, of mission. Uh, you know, John remained Jewish to the end of his life, and and Judaism uh, has never really been a, an outward-reaching religion. Uh, anyone can become a proselyte to Judaism, but it's it's more of a centripetal than it is a centrifugal concept. That is to say, uh, Judaism tries to attract people in rather than go out and win them. And you kind of feel something of that in John as well. John's concept of mission is that the church uh, should demonstrate the love of Christ, and in so doing, people will see uh, that God has been at work among us and will be attracted in. Uh, I'm sure that John watched you know, people like Paul and others in the first century with great interest and, and would have been supportive of their efforts as missionaries going out into the Gentile world to make converts. Uh, but but John worked among the Jewish people for the most part, uh, at, at least the, the greater part of his career. Uh, and so he has more the idea... Uh, let let's make uh, let's make the truth attractive and try to draw them in. Well, at that point, then I think we're getting close to the time where we unfortunately do have to be wrapping things up for this interview. Um, Dr. Rainbow, if people have been listening to this, well, first off, I'm going to tell them the book is Johannine Theology: The Gospel, the Epistles, and the Apocalypse. Uh, if you want to get it, I'm looking on Amazon right now. You can get it on Kinder, and that's twenty six thirty nine. The hardcover 
is thirty seventy two. So that, that that's on Amazon right now if you want to get it, and it is an excellent book. And on the very back, I see endorsements from Microbird, Scott McKnight, and Craig Blomberg, two of whom we've had on this show before, by the way. So with great endorsements like that, you know it has to be good. And I give it my endorsement on here as well if that counts for anything. Um, Dr. Rainbow, if uh, people want to find out more about you and your work, Foet, do you have a website or anything that they can go to or any way they can get in touch with you? Uh, well, I suppose the best way would be to go to the website of Sioux Falls Seminary mm-hmm. uh, and look under the faculty. Uh, there's some contact information there, mm-hmm. uh, and I think... Uh, there might be a little bit of biographical information about me as well. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I don't usually go there, so I guess uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure what all mm-hmm. is to be found. But I know that my email ad- uh, address at work is uh, is available there. P Rainbow at sfseminary.edu. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that would be the best place to go, I think. Yeah, and that's the place that I used, in fact, I think, to get in touch with you for this show to see if you'd come on sometime. And if someone does email you something, you will be able to address it. Then. I'll give it a whirl. Okay. Now, um, is there a, any final message you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Waters audience? Hmm. A final, a final word of exhortation. Sure. Hmm. Well, I guess I guess since we've been talking about John, I would say let us love one another. Mm-hmm. For love is of God. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Dr. Rainbow, it's been a freeing interview with you. We've talked a lot about the works of John. It's been very helpful here, and I hope it will be very helpful to the listeners who are hearing this. So I'd like to thank you for taking your time to be on the Deeper Waters podcast, and I hope we'll be seeing you again sometime. Okay, well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. And I'd like to remind everyone that next week, we, we're still not sure. You could be hearing Bob Stewart aren't on here. If not, well, we're probably going to wait until January 3rd for a show because, hey, it's Christmas. And Merry Christmas to everyone out there who's listened before. And I hope you have a good one. And I'll be in Atlanta with my in-laws celebrating. So wherever you are, I hope you have a Merry Christmas. And remember, it is Christmas. Keep Christ in it. For now, I'm Nick Peters.